if you have a Bible, would you just hold it? And then I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are going to take as our teaching text this morning, the Bible, the whole Bible. Let's wait and see if I'm joking. Uh, So this is the last Sunday in our Advent series. Uh, It's our last gathering as Church of the Redeemer in 2023 in this space. Um, And throughout this uh, Advent series this year, we've been looking at Genesis chapter 2 and looking at this condition in God's good creation as we see that God's people are in God's place, dwelling in his presence and joining him as they live out um, his purposes for them. And so these are four conditions that throughout this Advent series we've mapped onto the Advent themes of hope, peace, joy, and love. And what we've seen is that these four conditions sort of hit at these core longings that we all have as humans, that we all want to have a place to belong. We want a community where we're known and loved. We long for uh, the love of our Father and the approval of God. And these things all hit at what we all know that we want, but we also feel the frustration because we live in this uh, broken world that's marred by sin. And uh, we experience this in all different ways. We feel displaced and lonely and frustrated in our work and in our lives. And we know that our relationship with other people aren't uh, aren't always marked by peace, uh, but are often frustrating, and we feel like God is distant and cold and disinterested. So as we've looked at these themes uh, throughout Advent, what we've seen is that Jesus and the advent of Jesus means that we can begin to see these things restored. We saw that as, uh, as much as we have a kind of hopelessness in the exile from our place, Jesus is the new Joshua, or, you know, Yeshua. We looked at how literally when the angel says you will call him Jesus, it's the Greek form of Joshua, who is the deliverer of his people and the one who brings them back into the promised land, or in their case, brought them into the promised land for the first time. For us, Jesus restores us to this sense of place. And then in the second week, we saw that in this world full of violence and outrage and turmoil on the inside and on the outside, those who look to Jesus as their king can begin to have a sense of peace restored, and we can live as a peaceful people with one another. And then last week, we saw that in this time when work is uh, so easily an idol or a drudge, that work is complicated and messy, that Christ can restore our joy Uh, by restoring our sense of purpose. Um, And then this week, the Advent theme is love. And what we want to see is this theme of love mapped onto the Genesis 2 condition of presence, that God dwells with his people. And as I prepared this week for this final theme, this love and our love being found in God's presence with us, I reflected just on this whole past year. Um, I want to invite you maybe to think about the past year. I mean, so for many of us, this past year has been a time of um, reorientation. We've been able to to really focus on what is the core of the gospel. Um, a big theme for me, as I think about how we got to this moment from 34 Pentland Place uh, about a year ago, singing Christmas hymns together, has been just refocusing on this central theme of God's presence with us and wanting everything that we do to be, uh, to flow from or to be founded in our, our unity with Christ, our oneness with God, our intimacy with him, a friendship. Um, This has been key to the reorientation for me uh, over the past year is just focusing on the centrality of presence in the gospel. So none of you will be surprised to hear that the major theme for me and my discipleship and uh, I think for the past year or the first year of our church has been communion with God in Christ. Um, We started with a series in James that focused on wholehearted discipleship or lining up our insides with our outsides 
focusing on a discipleship that isn't double-minded, but that is singularly focused on being a f- being friends with God. And then uh, more recently, we studied Ephesians, and we considered in that letter the central theme for Paul of being united with Jesus, united with Christ. Uh, those of us who were studying Colossians saw that same theme of union with Christ in Paul's letter to the Colossians. It's just been sort of throughout what we've done this year. Um, as we started thinking about what our mission and vision and values would be, there's been a central emphasis on um, everything we do coming from a place of abiding in the presence of God, of, of being grafted into this vine and resting in who Jesus is as a way of producing producing fruit. And so I thought it was really fitting to end this series and to just be a punctuation on this year in the life of our church to meditate on Jesus as Emmanuel, Jesus as God with us, and the one who restores us to loving union with the Father. So since it's Christmas, I want to just ask for a little bit of creative license. Um, I want to tell you a story today. And so we have, do we have the logs queued up with the Christmas music? We don't. We don't have that. But if, you know, settle in with your coffee, maybe make some cocoa. I want to tell you a story about God and his people. It's a story about a God who wants to live with his people and a story about an amazing journey that that God took to make his dream a reality. And I'll just give credit, um, a lot of what I'm going to say today comes from a, uh, an Old Testament scholar named John Walton, who uh, is a professor at Wheaton. He calls this story uh, Emmanuel Theology. You can find him saying some of the same things on the internet. I just don't want to be accused of plagiarizing him. Um, so there it is. <laughs> so to understand what makes this story so wonderful, we have to begin with the characters. The main character of this story is God. Uh, This character, God, exists eternally as three people, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three people make up the Trinity. They are equal in their divinity and different in their personality. And this situation of sameness and difference creates a relationship of joy and delight as they exist in eternal community. The Bible tells us that God is love. And so in his very being, Father, Son, and Spirit love one another as they delight in who they uniquely are in their oneness and in their difference. And we see this unity and diversity on full display in Genesis 1 and 2. We see the Father speaks, the Son, the New Testament is going to tell us, is the word that goes forth, creating all things. We see the Spirit of God hovering over the formless, watery void as this animating power of God which proceeds from the Father and the Son. But maybe we ask the question, why did God create at all? And we have to remember that this is being written at a time of wilderness wandering, when God's people have, been, um, have, have come out of Egypt, where in Egypt they had heard these similar stories about how and why God created. Um, in all of these Egyptian and Babylonian stories about creation, the gods create um, out of a lack or a need, often through violence. It's one of the most common or well-known stories. Uh, talks about one god, essentially, uh, you know, earmuffs for the kids, uh, killing his mother, cutting her in half, and using half of her body to create the sky and half to create the earth. In most of these stories, humans are made out of the spit and other sort of like just gross things from the gods. And they were created to be slaves to the gods. The gods wanted humans to serve them to um, build them temples where they would live, to feed them with sacrifices, to clothe them by building statues of them. And so what we see is that God in his, God is essentially correcting the record about how and why he created. We see that God creates out of this sense of fullness, of delight, 
And so we aren't given a, a very clear answer, why did God create? Um, but what we see is maybe what we even feel in uh, our own experience of creating. When there is delight and when there is difference and community, there is a desire to see that um, creativity expand. Essentially, uh, the creation and humanity was created out of God's delight and desire to expand his own creativity. What we see is that it isn't, we don't live in a, a violent world that is created out of uh, sort of the, the warring gods. It isn't created out of sense of need, but it is, a, it is created out of harmony and out of God's own love within the Trinity. We also see that God doesn't, like these other gods, uh, form out of the, the innards of a slain God, but uh, God bends down and forms a man out of the clay. God breathes his own breath into the nostrils of the man. That God's creation is intimate and loving and caring. So we see how the God of the Bible, or Yahweh, is different from all these other uh, stories about gods and why they created people. He gets his hands in the dirt like an artist working with clay. He cares for his creation. We saw this a couple weeks ago that, that this first generation coming out of Egypt had been trained that they were no better than slaves. Um, just been reading the Wingfeather Saga in a section where the main character is being asked to accept that he is a tool and nothing more than a tool in a factory. This is exactly the situation of these Egyptians coming out of, or these uh, Israelites coming out of Egypt. They've been told, you are no better than your labor, and God is retraining them and inviting him them into his presence and to delighting in his creation. And many of them were saying it would be better for them to go back to Egypt where they could have plenty to eat and drink, and all they have to do is just accept this role as slaves. Believe what the Egyptians say about them, that they are no more than slaves. And this creation story, the story that we see God creating his people is telling them, no, you aren't slaves, you are my creation and my children, and you were created to dwell with me in a good, uh, in a good world, to join with me in my creative purposes. So we see that this God, this main character of our story, creates other characters in the story to join with him, and he blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply. So I think that we can't say that God needs to create, like he has some lack that he's trying to fill up, but what we see is that he delights in this relationship with his creation and wants us to join with him in the fruitfulness of creation. He desires for us to expand his community of love and joy. And what we saw also a couple weeks ago is that this is um, sort of culminates in this condition that we could call rest or Sabbath. So Genesis 2 begins with God resting. And what we saw is that um, when a king in the ancient world rests, he sits down on the throne because he has ordered his good creation. It would be like at the end of a battle that sort of settles a kind of peace. And finally, there can be a a resting on the throne, ruling over uh, the the peaceful, good, well-ordered kingdom. And that's what God's rest is in Genesis 2. And that's really what we've been considering this whole time is what does it mean to live into God's Sabbath? And so um, Eden, as we read about Eden, we're reading about a temple. And there are other smarter PhDs than me who have studied this. And so uh, Greg Beal wrote a whole biblical theology of temple throughout the whole uh, Bible. And a lot of what we're going to talk about is like looking at this theme of temple, this place where heaven and earth intersect, where God dwells with people as what God wanted from the beginning to the end and how he does that throughout this story. So we know, though, that because of sin... Because Eve ate the fruit, gave some to her husband, and he also ate, they were exiled from their place. And we can follow this exile east. 
this me- it's almost like a metaphorical going away from God's presence. We know that God isn't constrained to this place, Eden, but as the people go out, it's like they're going further away from God's presence. And at the entrance of uh, the Garden of Eden, there is a cherub and a flaming sword, just like a flaming sword just going back and forth, blocking the way. So they can't get back to this place of Sabbath rest where they dwell in God's presence and delight in his creation. And so they go further east and we can trace that movement eastward uh, right alongside murder and wickedness and just the expansion of sin throughout the world. And then we come to this pivotal moment in the story uh, called the Tower of Babel where the people say, we want to get God back through our own means. The Tower of Babel was what in the ancient world, well, we still call it this, but it's a ziggurat, which was uh, built next to a temple, and it was there to sort of build a way for the gods to come up and down. So the god could come down the ziggurat and enter the temple. But we saw that they were doing this uh, to to make a name for themselves, and that shouldn't surprise us. In the ancient world, the uh, gods would often, you know, they would go in, uh, nations would go into battle with their images of their gods before them. And so having a great and powerful God was like saying, we are a great and powerful people. Our God will bring us victory. And so they are trying to get God to come down the ziggurat, enter the temple, and therefore make a great name for themselves. God's power, God's glory is being used to prop them up. And so uh, we can see that there is a desire to get God's presence back, and yet it's a twisted desire. Um, We can follow the story. So God doesn't uh, do what they want. He He doesn't come and make their name great. Instead, he confuses their languages and scatters them. But we see the very next chapter, we see God's plan to uh, restore what he wants to restore his presence with his people, and that is through a covenant with a person. Um, God restores his covenant with, or he makes a covenant with Abraham as a way to begin restoring uh, his his place with his people. So what we see is that he calls, if you look on like an Old Testament map of uh, Abraham's journey, Ur, or Ur of the Chaldeans, is about as far east as Abraham ever gets. And he says, I want you to leave this place and go to a land that I will show you. And so after uh, generations of eastward movement, symbolically away from the presence of God, God calls Abraham to turn to the land that he will show him. And in, again, not a literal uh, presence, because we know that God isn't bound to a geographic location, but symbolically turning back to that place where God's presence will be restored with his people again. And we can follow this theme then all the way through the other covenants of the Old Testament. And so God all along is wanting to be with his people. And so he uh, calls them out of Egypt and then teaches them. If we look at the book of um, the book of Exodus, there's all the exciting stuff at the beginning with the plagues and Moses. It's all the stuff that makes the cartoon. All the stuff that doesn't make the cartoon is giving the law and instructions for the tabernacle. It's those points of the Bible where you're like, oh no, it's the instructions for the tabernacle. What do, do I have to read all this? But it becomes way more exciting when you realize that this is God's way of restoring the thing that he always wanted and that was lost in what we call the fall. It is God's way of setting up residence again with his people. And at the end of Exodus, we see that the temple is completed and they they see the glory cloud of God's presence entering the temple. Uh, entering the tabernacle, I'm sorry. So the, God is once again dwelling with his people. And even more precisely, there is the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolizes God's presence most, uh, most acutely because you have these cherubim at the, at the top of the Ark and their, their wings touch. And it was as if this was the throne of God. This was the very throne of God. That this is like where his feet come into the earth, where his throne is in the heavens, but somehow there is a connection where heaven and earth overlap in this very spot. The cherubim uphold the throne of God. Heaven and earth connecting in one place. 
And we see the same thing happen when Solomon builds the temple. There is, uh, at the completion of the temple, the glory cloud of God's presence enters the temple. The same ark is there as well. But of course we know that the story of Adam and Eve repeats. That the people turn to false gods, they worship idols, and they are, in the end, exiled from their promised land. They are sent far away from the temple, from the most holy place where God's presence was among them. And I think that if we frame the biblical story... Uh, in this way, as a God who desires to live with his people. A presence that was there in uh, Genesis 2, but was lost. And it's God trying to bring them back. I think that, in a way, everything that we read in the Bible takes on a different shade. So if we think about this theme of election, often we think of election as those who are in and those who are out. But what if we thought about it as God choosing a people who are to be set apart for this special purpose of being those people who carry God's presence among them? And the law then is not about keeping an abstract moral code, but it's about living a kind of life. It's about being sanctified in a way that is necessary to be purified for a people who could dwell among this holy God or rather to have this holy God dwell among them. So the way we think about election and the law, the way we read these things might change. The way we think about the promised land would change because it's not just about a territory or it's not just about Israel getting a blessing, but it's a kind of new Eden where the presence of God can reside and where all the nations can come and bring gifts and receive blessings. The prophet Ezekiel, maybe the book of the Bible that I understand the least, and yet it has so much to do with this theme of temple. Ezekiel has this odd vision of waters going out from the temple. And he just he goes out further and measures down. And what he realizes is that the further he goes out from the temple, the deeper the waters are until eventually they're unpassable. What he's saying is that the promised land and even temple worship isn't just about being this special elect group of people, but it's about being a blessing to the nations, that those who are far off would be blessed in what is ha- by what is happening at the temple as there is true worship happening. And I think this lens would also change how we read the prophets who are constantly warning the people about what will happen if, there's, if they're worshiping idols and false worship and, and, and all the sort of wickedness and idolatry. We see what's happening as the people all throughout the Old Testament are setting up high places where they're worshiping false gods. And they're, they're setting up these Asherah poles where they're worshiping the false goddess Asherah. And we see that they're even taking these little household gods into their own household. It's not just about God being jealous for their worship. It is about that, but it's about restoring what was lost in Eden, which was God dwelling with his people, that God can't dwell in a place where there's mixed worship, where we'll have God alongside Asherah and Baal and Molech. And the story, all along this story, demonstrates over and over again that it is in God's very nature that this God, who is the main character of our story, is merciful and slow to anger and abounding in faithful and steadfast love. And yet he is just and he punishes wickedness. And so in this story, if we're tracing along, there is the temple... There is temple worship, but we see that the king Manasseh uh, builds an altar to the stars and to the heavenly host in the temple that was reserved for worshiping God. We also see that he set up an Asherah pole in the temple. Tem- so these, these means of false worship are there in the temple that was set up for God's presence. This wicked king even sacrificed his own son to a pagan god. 
I don't think it says in that text, but the the God, the most wicked God who demanded child sacrifice, um, and by God I mean lowercase false God, was the God named Molech. And often this was seen as like the final straw, that nothing, nothing ever even occurred to God, to Yahweh, to think of. I want to read uh, a little bit from how the Bible describes describes this because I think you can uh, you can see how this um, this idea of presence is central to what's being lost here. It says he took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon in this temple and in Jerusalem which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites wander from the land I gave their ancestors, if only they will be careful and do everything I command them and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave them. Do you see what God wants? He says, I want to put my name, which represents his very presence in Jerusalem that I don't want my people wandering from the land of their ancestors, but I gave them this land where they would worship me and experience my blessing. If only they would keep my law, right? It's not about keeping an abstract moral code. It's about God's presence with them. And yet this wicked king is setting up false worship in this very place. Manasseh's son, Amon, was like his dad and was wicked, and he uh, did what his dad did, basically. And then um, when he was assassinated, Amon's son, Josiah, who was eight years old, uh, the age of my daughter, Eden, <laughs> he was made king at eight years old. And the Bible tells us that he did what was right. He didn't follow the ways of his grandpa, Manasseh. It says he followed the ways of David, who worshiped God. And I hope you can see uh, as we frame this story um, through this lens of presence, what's going on in exile. And so though he, um, though Josiah found the book of the law, restored true worship, got rid of the high places, got rid of the Asherah poles, and even got rid of the household gods, um, he was spared from exile. And yet the people had been so wicked and they had so rejected God that God described it like being married to a, um, an unfaithful woman, a prostitute. He said, being your God is like being married to a prostitute who keeps going to these other lovers and, and saying, look at what they have gotten me. Look at what they've done for me. All along, we feel God's heart saying, what I want is to be with you. And so God, despite Josiah's reforms, sends his people into exile. God cannot live among a people who want to set up an altar to God next to a pagan God. God will not be worshipped alongside demons. And so in this really sad scene in Ezekiel 10, the prophet looks out and he sees those cherubim carry the presence of God away from the temple. The people are living in exile. God's presence has left the temple. We see that the Eden 2 conditions are in shambles. We saw this a little bit when we studied Ezra and Nehemiah that um, after some time in exile, the Persian king Cyrus allows the exiled Jews to start going back and rebuilding. But what we saw when we studied the book of Nehemiah is though though Ezra and Nehemiah faithfully rebuilt, they rebuilt the temple, they rebuilt the law, they start repenting of stuff. It's almost like they're trying to figure out, like, how do we get God's presence back? We built the temple, nothing happened. Maybe we need to build the wall, let's do that. Then they look around, they're like, some of these guys have married foreign wives, let's get rid of them. They're trying to get God's presence back, but the end of Nehemiah and the end of Ezra is frustration and confusion. Like, why isn't God's presence coming back? And then, all of a sudden, the main character in this story just goes silent for about 400 years. It's an odd, you know, it's an odd plot device, right? 
the main character is just sort of gone. And we, that doesn't mean that God wasn't alive and active. God may have been speaking to individuals. God may have been making candles burn really long when they shouldn't have. It was a Hanukkah joke. Maybe, maybe the wrong crowd for the Hanukkah joke. But there were no prophets. There was no word for the nation. There was just silence. And historically, we see that the Persians give way to the Greeks and then to the Romans. And some of you might know some of these bits of history with people like Alexander and Caesar and, uh, or Julius Caesar, Mark Antony and Cleopatra. Maybe you know some of these bits of history. But it's a, a period of about 400 years where there is no word from God. During these 400 years, the temple was rebuilt by Herod. And as we sort of open the curtain on Act 2 of this story, we see that the people of God are living, they're in their place, but they're living like exiles under Roman occupation. We also see that the temple uh, worship continues, but it is a place, though it should be a place of uh, prayer for all nations, as Jesus said, it's become a place, uh, it's become a marketplace and a den of thieves. So if we sort of think about this, these Eden conditions, we see that though the temple is standing, it is far from the place where God is dwelling with his people. The prophet Isaiah says that um, at this point, a people are walking in darkness and living in deep darkness. Or the, the, the Christmas hymn says, long lay the world in sin and error pining. We could just imagine that this is a time of darkness. And then the gospel uh, writer John tells us that a light shone into that darkness. One day, a priest, we'll call him Zach, gets called up for temple duty. And after 400 years, I'm glad one person got a chuckle out of my Zach uh, after 400 years of silence God finally speaks again an angel speaks to Zechariah telling him that he'll be the father of John who isn't the Messiah but the one that who will prepare the way for the Messiah it's like that scene in Narnia where Santa's there for some reason Santa is not Aslan, but he's a sign that Aslan is on the move. Something is happening. Something is shifting. And then one day, just like any other day, without much fanfare at all, the presence of God once again came into the temple. But this time, the presence of God was carried on his mama's hip, and he was swaddled up in cloth. And if he was anything like My first two kids, he had his thumb just popped right in his mouth. What we see is the glory of God didn't fill the temple like a cloud. And this time only an old man and an old woman really took much notice. But they rejoiced that the presence of God was once again in the temple of God. We see that he is finally here. The the new Joshua who will deliver his people from sin and restore their place to the promised land. The son of David who will sit on David's throne and restore the kingdom to a kind of deep and true shalom, a peace that will transform society from the top down and our hearts. The the greatest and final prophet who will call their people to repent of their sin and return to their true vocation of being God's image bearers who take dominion in the way that God does and to shine a light that will be for all nations. What we see is that this moment, this baby being born, the one who is the chosen Messiah, but very God of very God, uh, this is what Advent is all about, his arrival. This presence is what was lost when Adam and Eve were sent out from Eden and the way was barred with his flaming sword, but it's now restored because a little baby king was born. So I've suggested that I think if we take this theme of presence as central to the biblical story, that it maybe challenges some of the ways that we think about these big themes like like law and election. And the last thing I want to challenge you with or all of us to think about is, does this way of framing the story change the way we understand gospel? Does 
And I think maybe it changes or will at least challenge the way we think about sin, about what was lost and what is regained in Christ, and what we mean when we say good news. Um, many of you might, might know this, but the, the Greek word for sin is harmatia. And it means to miss the mark, to miss what you're shooting at. And it has like a, a, another layer of meaning that actually means to forfeit or to lose because of missing the mark. You've missed the mark and you're out. And I, I, think, I think that I'm, I'm right about this and most things. I think that... <laughs> I think that our common understanding of the fall is that Adam and Eve did what God didn't want them to do because God requires moral perfection. And so because they messed up, God just burned with anger and he kicked them out of the garden in like disgust. And if that's true, then the Bible is a story about a people who are trying to get back into good graces with God. And God would rather keep these sinful, disgusting people away from him and at a distance, but maybe sometimes they get good enough, they get moral enough, they clean themselves up enough to get God to sort of come out of hiding for a little while until they inevitably screw it up again and then God goes away again. This isn't the story of, that the Bible tells us. I, wanna, I want you to hear this from Genesis 3 about why God kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. Verse 22 says, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. This is the chapter that ends, by the way, with the cherubim standing guard and the flaming sword guarding the way to Eden. So God is not like some manic king shut up in his castle pushing people away from him god says they have to be sent out because they sh- they can't reach out their hand and eat from the tree of life what i want us to see is that there's grace in their banishment the bible isn't really clear about why it's so important that humans not eat from the tree of life now that they've uh, no good and evil but i think that we can sort of see that what it, we know what it's like to live as people who try to live out God's purposes in a marred and sinful world, right? When they try to achieve the purpose that God had set out for them, which was being like God through the devil's means, eating the fruit, we see that this breaks the whole Eden to thing. The presence, the place, everything is broken. When we, when we fail to live out Uh, our purpose in the same way, in line with God's uh, place, God's people, God's purpose, we feel anxiety and frustration and insecurity. So what I think is that if they continue to eat from the tree of life and they lived forever, then in this reality, it would have not been eternal life, but it would have been an eternal hell. So I think there's a grace in his banishment. Um, So I remember going to the theater to see the Tom Hanks classic, Castaway. And when I, I, so I distinctly remember this moment when the credits rolled, there was this like groan of frustration. Do you remember how it ends? Spoiler alert for the 20-year-old movie. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. It ends with Tom Hanks' character at a crossroads. Everyone in the theater pretty frustrated that it doesn't sort of tie a nice bow on the end, but I loved it. I thought it was a perfect way to end the movie, showing that he has some freedom, some choice after this long story. And then I also went to the theater to see a different movie, Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Uh, Much 
the opposite of uh, <laughs> Castaway. About an hour after I thought the movie was over, it was still tying up all the little narrative strands. <laughs> let's see where Sam ends up. Let's see where Frodo ends up, where Bilbo ends up. And <laughs> the story of the Bible is a lot more like Lord of the Rings than it is Castaway in more than one way, I'm sure. <laughs> But John's book, the, in, in John's book of the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we see a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth with a tree of life in the temple, the place where God once again dwells with people, we're told in Revelation 21. I want to read a bit from Revelation 22 because this is the part that talks about this tree. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the land, the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and the name will be, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So God's dwelling will be with people again, and they will eat from the tree of life. The tree that they were barred from in Genesis 3, they now have access, and its leaves is for the healing of the nations. It's not a garden, but it's a garden city that is a temple where God dwells, where heaven and earth are one. So here's the question. Why can people now eat from the tree of life? If it was so important in Genesis 3 that they not reach out their hand and eat it, what changed? If we take that moralistic story, I think we would have to say, well, maybe they cleaned up their behavior enough that now they could get in to eat. We know that this is not true. That those who have access in the end to the tree of life are those who have tasted from another tree. The tree that the Romans used as a death machine. The cross of Jesus Christ is now the means by which those who have faith in that death and resurrection can be restored to God's presence. The death that Jesus died on the cross in some paradoxical way becomes the means for defeating the final enemy of God, which is death. On the cross, Jesus is exalted to his highest place, as Paul tells uh, the Philippians, that though he was obedient to death on a cross, the Father exalted him and put all of his enemies under his feet. The tasting the fruit of that tree is what reminds us week after week as we come to the table of communion that we will taste the, the, that final tree, that we will taste from the tree of life that is there with the river flowing from it. And all of this is a way of saying what, uh, all of this is a way of saying that we have a new, a new head. This is what theolo- theologians call... Um, our federal head, that we are no longer headed by Adam. He is no longer our representative. We are no longer under Adam, but we are in Christ. Christ is now our head. We have been transferred from one dominion to another. We now live in the light of Christ. He has redeemed us. Because where Adam missed the mark, Where Adam missed the mark of representing Christ, Jesus hit the exact center of the bullseye. That Jesus, as Hebrews tells us, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Jesus hit that mark. And by being united with him by faith, we come into this new relationship with God. We are now present with God, with Jesus as our head. Um, it's a wonderful story. 
I think the thing that I want us to see is that at the center of this story is love, God's love for his people. That it wasn't people who were trying desperately to get God back, but God wanted to get us back. That God so loved the world that he sent his son. That it was God's initiative, God's love came after us. And so the question is, we sort of said in in this reality that God's love came for us, redeemed us, and in the end will restore us. We will live with him for all eternity. So what do we do with that now? I hope that warms your heart. I hope that that story is a wonderful, life-giving story for you. But of course, the question always is, so what do we do? How then should we live, as someone once asked? It was Francis Schaeffer, if you care. But anyway, um, what do we do with this? So there was a, a little book, of sort of a classic Christian book by a guy named Brother Lawrence, a monk, called Pract- uh, The Practice of the Presence of God. I read this book a few years ago. It was like one of those you know, classic books that you're supposed to read one day. And so I finally got around to it. And I, I, I felt myself in this tension of like, yes, I want to be constantly aware of God's presence in my life. And yet, Brother Lawrence kept saying, like, any time his mind would drift to something else, he would be like, back to God, back to God. It was, it was this constant uh, refocusing his mind back on the presence of God. And I felt like it was very unearthed and undirty in a way that I thought, can I work on cultivating the same awareness of God's presence all the time, but in a very tactile, tangible way through the life that he has given us to live in the body? So I want just to end by calling you to think about how to apply uh, the presence of God in your daily life through these P's that we've been looking at uh, over the course of Advent. So we talked about the importance of place and how Jesus restores us to a sense of belonging to a place. And so how can you in your own life become more aware of the presence of God as you live daily lives, sitting down to meals, going outside? So there is a beauty in your place that you can respond to and say, praise God for that beauty. And yes, I'm talking about the physical beauty of the creation that's revealed in the stars and in flowers and in a good meal. And there are a people there who are also beautiful and complicated and weird. And so can we learn to see God's presence in and through other people? This isn't just like a, um, you know, triumphant, everything is great theology. It also trains us to see the badness and ugliness and lies and grieve them. Because we say this is not how it should be. God's presence isn't sort of living in this place. God's presence isn't, isn't being made manifest and clear in this ugly place or in this, uh, in this wicked person. And so we learn to lament and grieve and groan with the creation, longing for uh, the new heaven and the new earth and for Jesus to, to come and make all things right again. Finally, as you think about your work and your vocation, How do we see God's presence at work when you go to work? The final thing I'll say is that this is, we remember the beginning of Genesis 2. This is all about God's rest, God's Sabbath. Jesus justifies to the Pharisees his working on the Sabbath by saying, my God has been working up until now and I will work too. There is a kind, of, a kind of vocation that's coming alongside God and his good created order, and there is delight in your work. I know that none of these things are easy or, complicated because we, or uh, uncomplicated because we live in a broken world, but there is an invitation, as uh, the Bible calls us, to, to strive to enter God's rest. One of my favorite paradoxes of Scripture striving to enter God's rest. And I think this comes with an awareness in our daily lives that God is with us. The final thing Jesus said to his disciples as he was preparing to leave them, he says, go wait in Jerusalem. I will send a a comforter to you. I will send a comforter to you. And then he says, I'm going away to be with the Father, but I will be with you always until the end of the age. Must have been strange to be standing there. You're telling us that you're with us, but you're going away. And I think that promises to us. He sent the Spirit which dwells with us. We are His temple uh, now. We are His temple today. 
Um, that's good news. So there are three trees. Maybe there are two trees. I'm not sure if the one in the beginning and the one in the end are the same tree, but they're both called the tree of life. The, the one that stands in the middle is the tree that was meant for death, and it becomes for us the tree of life. The fruit of that tree, the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, nourishes us in our spirit. We take week after week, not just to sort of remember that we were sinners and now we're saved, but it is our very spiritual food that builds us up. It reminds us of the kind of people we are, that we are people who take what the world gives us for death and make it into life. And we do that because wherever the Spirit of God hovers, there is new life. Uh, may that be true of us today. So I'm going to pray and then invite you to meditate on um, this tree that we celebrate today, uh, the presence of God with us, and then you can come take communion. Jesus, we are amazed that this birth of a baby boy without much fanfare and especially none to those who uh, were in the seats of the powerful. That this birth is the central fact of all human history. That what was lost in the garden, what will be restored in the end, hinges on this birth. That you stand at the center of it. And that what we long for so much is this restored presence of God with us is ours in Emmanuel. Though at times it's hard to feel your presence with us, we have the promise that you will be with us always. We have the, the assurance that you dwell with us in the Holy Spirit. That you are with us even now and I have to confess, God, as I say that, it feels like I'm just saying words and I want to know and I want to feel you with us. I want to feel you right beside me. And God, I pray for the assurance and I pray that we would all have the assurance that you have sealed this reality for us. That it is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, which is given as a down payment of what is to come. God, build us up in this reality and make us new creation people, even as we live in this broken world where all these Advent themes are true of us, that we have our hope and our peace and our love and our joy are all founded in who you are and this good news that a baby was born and a king is now here, that your, your kingdom has been inaugurated and established. Please go with us, Lord, now as we celebrate Christmas at parties or um, whatever we do, would it be just just full of joy because we know that in that in some uh, incomplete way, our world still knows and celebrates that its true king has come. Make us a light in the darkness and revive your people here at Church of the Redeemer throughout our city, throughout our state, throughout our country, throughout the world, would you revive your people and send an awakening as we live by the power of your Holy Spirit. I thank you for all these wonderful truths, and I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.